0: Chapter 10 Doing it in style The chairman goes woof Harry King puts something by The screaming starts One kiss, no tongue Council of wars Moist takes charge A little magic with stamps Arousing the professor's interest A vision of paradise Wing it There's nothing left Remember the nearly gold chain? This is the other end of the rainbow Talk yourself out of a situation you can't talk your way out of. Make your own luck. Put on a show. If you fall, let them remember how you turned it into a dive. Sometimes the finest hour is the last one. He went to the wardrobe and took out the best golden suit, the one he wore on special occasions. Then he went and found Gladys, who was staring out of the window. He had to speak her name quite loudly before she turned to face him very slowly. They are coming, she said. Yes, they are, said Moist, and I'd better look my best. Could you press these trousers, please? Wordlessly, Gladys took the pants from him, held them against the wall, and ran a huge palm down them before handing them back. Moist could have shaved with the crease. Then she turned back to the window. Moist joined her. There was already a crowd in front of the bank, and coaches were pulling up as he watched. There were a fair number of guards around, too. A brief flash indicated that Otto shriek of the Times was already taking pictures. Ah, yes, a deputation was now forming. People wanted to be in at the death. Sooner or later, someone would hammer at the door. Blow that for a game of soldiers. He couldn't let that happen. Wash, shave, trim errant nose hairs, brush teeth, comb hair, shine boots, don hat, walk downstairs, unlock door very slowly so that the click was unlikely to be heard outside, Wait until he heard a tread getting louder. Moist opened the door sharply. Well, gentlemen? Cosmo Lavish wobbled as the knock failed to connect, but recovered and thrust a sheet of paper at him. Emergency audit, he said. These gentlemen, and here he indicated a number of worthy-looking men behind him, are representatives of the major guilds and some of the other banks. This is standard procedure, and you can't stand in their way. You will note that we have brought Commander Vimes of the Watch. When we have established that there is indeed no gold in the vault, I shall instruct him to arrest you on suspicion of theft. Moist glanced at the commander. He did not like the man much, and was certain that Vimes did not like him at all. He was even more certain, though, that Vimes did not take orders from the likes of Cosmo Lavish. "'I'm sure that the commander will do as he sees fit,' said Moist meekly. "'You know the way to the vault. I'm sorry it's a bit of a mess at the moment.' Cosmo half-turned to make certain the crowd heard everything he said. "'You are a thief, Mr. Lipfig, a cheat and a liar, an embezzler, and have no dress sense whatsoever.' "'I say, that's a bit on the harsh side,' said Moist as the men swept through. "'I happen to think I dress rather snappily.' Now he was alone on the steps facing the crowd. They weren't a mob yet, but it could only be a matter of time. "'Can I help anyone else?' he said. "'What about our money?' said someone. "'What about it?' said Moist. "'Says in the paper you've got no gold,' said the Inquirer. He pushed a damp copy of the Times toward Moist. The newspaper had, on the whole, been quite restrained. He had expected bad headlines, but the story was a single column on the front page, and it was full of, "'We understand that's,' and "'We believe that's,' and "'The Times has been informed that's,' and all the phrases that journalists use when they are dealing with large sums of money they don't fully understand— and are not quite certain that what they've been told is true. He looked up into the face of Saccharissa Cripslock. Sorry, she said, but there were watchmen and guards all around the place last night, and we didn't have much time. And frankly, Mr. Bent's attack was enough of a story in its own right. Everyone knows he runs the bank. The chairman runs the bank, said Moist, stiffly. No, Moist, the chairman goes woof, said Saccharissa. Look, didn't you sign another thing when you took over the job? A receipt or something? Well maybe there was a mass of paperwork i just signed what i was told so did mr fusspot he gods the lawyers would have fun with that said saccharissa her notebook magically appearing in her hand and it's no joke either the strange thing about what lawyers have fun with is that no one else ever sees the joke he could end up in debtors prison kennel said moist he goes woof remember and that's not going to happen saccharissa bent down to pat mr fusspot on his little head and froze in mid bend "'What has he got in his—' she began. "'Zacharissa, can we go into this later? "'I really have not got time for it right now. "'I swear by any three gods you believe in, "'even though you're a journalist, "'that when this is over, "'I will give you a story that will tax "'even the Times' ability "'to avoid inelegant and suggestive subjects. "'Trust me.' "'Yes, but, but it looks like a. she began. "'Ah, so you do know what it is, "'and I don't need to explain,' said Moist, briskly. "'He handed the paper back "'to its worried owner. Uh, "'You're Mr. Cusper, aren't you?' "'He said. "'You have a balance of seven ank morpork dollars "'with us, I believe.' "'For a moment, "'the man looked impressed. "'Moist was really good at faces. "'I told you we aren't bothered "'about gold here,' said Moist. "'Yeah, but,' the man began, "'well, it's not much of a bank "'if people can take the gold "'out of it, is it?' he said. "'But it doesn't make any difference,' "'said Moist. "'I did tell you all.' "'They looked uncertain.' In theory, they should be stampeding up the steps. Moist knew what was holding them back. It was hope. It was the little voice inside that said, This isn't really happening. It was the voice that drove people to turn out the same pocket three times in a fruitless search for lost keys. It was mad belief that the world is bound to start working properly again if I truly believe and there will be keys. It was the voice that said, This can't be happening very loudly, in order to drown out the creeping dread that it was. He had about thirty seconds while hope lasted. And then the crowd parted. Poochie Lavish did not know how to make an entrance. Harry King, on the other hand, did. The milling, uncertain throng opened up like the sea in front of a hydrophobic prophet, leaving a channel that was suddenly lined on either side by large, weathered-looking men with broken noses and a useful cross-section of scars. Along this recent avenue strode Harry King, trailing cigar smoke. Moist managed to stand his ground until Mr. King was a foot away, and made sure to look him in the eye. "'How much money did I put in your bank, Mr. Lipwig? asked Harry. Uh, "'I believe it was fifty thousand dollars, Mr. King,' said Moist. "'Yeah, I believe it was something like that,' said Mr. King. "'Can you guess what I'm going to do now, Mr. Lipwig? Moist did not guess. The splot was still circulating in his system, and in his brain, the answer clanged like a funeral bell. "'You're going to put some more in, aren't you, Mr. King?' Harry King beamed, as if Moist was a dog that had just done a new trick. "'That's right, Mr. Lipvig. I thought to myself, Harry, I thought, fifty thousand dollars seems a bit on the lonely side, so I've come along to round it up to sixty thousand dollars.' "'On signal,' Some more of Harry King's men came up behind him, carrying large chests between them. Most of it's gold and silver, Mr Lipvig, said Harry. But I know you've got lots of bright young men who can count it all up for you. This is very kind of you, Mr King, said Moist. But at any minute the auditors are going to come back, and the bank is going to be in big, big trouble. Please, I can't accept your money. Harry leaned closer to Moist, enveloping him in cigar smoke and a hint of decayed cabbage. I know you're up to something he whispered, tapping the side of his nose. The bastards are out to get you, I can see that. I know a winner when I seize one, and I know you've got something up your sleeves, eh? Just my arms, Mr. King, just my arms, said Moist. And long may you keep them, said Harry, slapping him on the back. The men filed past Moist, and deposited their cases on the floor. I don't need a receipt, said Harry. You know me, Mr. Litvig, you know you can trust me— just like I know I can trust you. Moist shut his eyes just for a moment, to think that he had worried about ending the day hanging. Your money is safe with me, Mr. King, he said. I know, said Harry King, and when you've won the day, I'll send young Wallace along, and he'll have a little chat with your monkey about how much interest I'm going to get paid on this little lot. All right, fair's fair. It certainly is, Mr. King. Right, said Harry. Now. I'm off to buy some land. There was some uncertain murmuring from the crowd as he departed. The new deposit had thrown them. It had thrown Moist, too. People were wondering what Harry King knew. So did Moist. It was a terrible thing to have someone like Harry believing in you. Now the crowd had evolved a spokesman who said, Look, what's going on? Has the gold gone or not? I don't know, said Moist. I haven't had a look today. You say that as if it doesn't matter, said Sacharissa. Well, as I have explained, Moist said, the city is still here. The bank is still here. I am still here. He cast a glance toward Harry's broad retreating back. For the moment. So we don't need the gold cluttering up the place, do we? Cosmo Lavish appeared in the door behind Moist. So, Mr. Lipvig, it would appear that you are a trickster to the end. I beg your pardon, said Moist. Other members of the ad hoc audit committee were pushing their way out, looking satisfied. They had, after all, been woken up very early in the morning, and those who are awakened very early in the morning expect to kill before breakfast. "'Have you finished already?' said Moist. "'Surely you must know why we were brought here,' said one of the bankers. "'You know very well that last night the City Watch found no gold in your vaults. We can confirm this unhappy state of affairs.' "'Oh, well, you know how it is with money,' said Moist. "'You think your flat broke?' "'and there it was all the time in your other trousers.' "'No, Mr. Lipfig, the joke is on you,' said Cosmo. "'The bank is a sham,' he raised his voice. "'I would advise all the investors you have misled "'to take their money back while they can.' "'No, squat to me.' Commander Vimes pushed his way through the bewildered bankers at the same time as half a dozen troll officers pounded up the steps and ended up shoulder to shoulder in front of the double doors. "'Are you a bloody fool, sir?' said Vimes, nose to nose with Cosmo. That sounded to me like incitement to riot. This bank is closed until further notice. I am a director of the bank, Commander, said Cosmo. You cannot keep me out. Watch me, said Vimes. I suggest you direct your complaint to his lordship. Sergeant Detritus? Yes, sir. Nobody goes in there without a chitty signed by me, and Mr. Lipwig, you will not leave the city. Understood? Yes, Commander. Moist turned to Cosmo. You know, you're not looking well, he said. That's not a good complexion you have there. No more words, Lipvig. Cosmo leaned down. Up close, his face looked even worse, like the face of a wax doll, if a wax doll could sweat. We'll meet in court. It's the end of the road, Mr. Lipvig. Or should I say, Mr. Spangler? Oh, gods! I should have done something about Cribbins," thought Moist. I was too busy trying to make money. And there was Adora Bell being ushered through the crowd by a couple of watchmen who were also acting as crutches. Vimes hurried down the steps as if he'd been expecting her. Moist became aware that the background noise of the city was getting louder. The crowd had noticed it too. Somewhere, something big was happening, and this little confrontation was just a sideshow. You think you are clever, Mr. Lipvig? said Cosmo. No, I know I'm clever. I think I'm unlucky, said Moist. But he thought, I didn't have that many customers, surely I can hear screams. With triumphant shouting behind him, he pushed his way down to doorbell and the cluster of coppers. You're golems, right? He said. Every golem in the city just stopped moving, said Adorabel. Their gazes met. They're coming, said Moist. Yes, I think they are. Who are? said Vimes, suspiciously. Er, uh, them? Said Moist, pointing. A few people came running around the corner from the mall and sprinted, grave faced, past the crowd outside the bank. But they were only the flecks of foam driven before the tidal wave of people fleeing from the river area, and the wave of people broke on the bank as if it were as a rock in the way of a flood. Floating on the sea of heads, as it were, was a circular canvas about ten feet across of the sort that gets used to catch people who very wisely jump from burning buildings. The four people carrying it were Dr. Hicks and four other wizards, and it was at this point you would notice the chalked circle and the magic symbols. In the middle of the portable magic circle sat Professor Fleed, belabouring the wizards unsuccessfully with his ethereal staff. They fetched up alongside the steps as the crowd ran onward. "'I'm sorry about this,' panted Hicks. "'It's the only way we could get him here, and he insisted. Oh, how he insisted!' "'Where's the young lady?' Fleed shouted. His voice was barely audible in the living daylight. Adora Bell pushed her way through the policeman. Yes, Professor Fleed, she said. I have found your answer. I have spoken with several Omnions. I thought they all died thousands of years ago. Well, it is a department of necromancy, Fleed said. But I must admit, they were a wee bit indistinct, even for me. Can I have a kiss? One kiss, one answer. Adora Bell looked at Moist. He shrugged. The day was totally beyond him. He wasn't flying any more. He was simply being blown along by the gale. All right, she said, but no tongues. Tongues, said Fleed sadly. I wish. There was the briefest of pecks, but the ghostly necromancer beamed. Wonderful, he said. I feel at least a hundred years younger. You have done the translations, said Adora Bell, And at that moment, Moist felt a vibration underfoot. What, ho oh, that! said Fleet. It was those gold golems you were talking about, and another vibration, enough to cause a sense of unease in the bowels. Although it turns out that the word in context doesn't mean gold at all. There are more than one hundred and twenty things it can mean, but in this case, taken in conjunction with the rest of the paragraph, it means a thousand. The street shook again. Four thousand golems I think you'll find, said Fleet cheerfully. Oh, And here they are now. They came along the streets, six abreast, wall to wall and ten feet high, water and mud cascading off them. The city echoed to their tread. They did not trample people, but mere market stalls and coaches splintered under their massive feet. They spread out as they moved, fanning out across the city, thundering down side streets, heading for the gates of Ankh-Morpork, which were always open because there was no point in discouraging customers. And there were the horses, perhaps no more than a score in all the hurrying throng, saddles built into the clay of their backs, overtaking the two legged golems, and not a man watched but thought, Where can I get one of those? The rest of the golems marched on with the sound of thunder, heading out of the city. One man shaped golem stopped in the middle of Sator Square, dropped on one knee, raised a fist as if in salute, and went still. The horses halted beside it, as if awaiting riders and when the many-walled city of Ankh-Morpork had one more wall, out beyond the gates, they stopped. As one, they raised their right hands in a fist, shoulder to shoulder, ringing the city, the golems guarded. In Sator Square, Commander Vimes looked up at the poised fist, and then at Moist. Am I under arrest? said Moist, meekly. Vimes sighed. Mr. Lipvig, he said. There's no word for what you are. The palace's big ground-floor council room was packed. Most people had to stand. Every guild, every interest group, and everyone who just wanted to say that they had been there, was there. The crowd overflowed into the palace grounds and out onto the streets. Children were climbing on the golem in the square, despite the efforts of the watchmen who were guarding it. Who was being guarded from whom was not, at this point, either certain or germane. Guarding was in the process of happening. There was a large axe buried in the big table, Moist noticed. The force of it had split the wood. It had clearly been there for some time. Perhaps it was some kind of warning or some kind of symbol. This was a council of war, after all, but without the war. However, we are already getting some very threatening notes from the other cities, said Lord Vetinari, so it is only a matter of time.' "'Why?' said Arch-Chancellor Ridcully of Unseen University, who had managed to get a seat by dint of elevating its protesting occupant out of it. "'All the things are doing is standing around outside the walls, yes?' "'Quite so,' said Veterinary, "'and it's called aggressive defence. This is practically a declaration of war.' He gave a sad little sigh, the sign of a brain shifting down a gear. "'May I remind you of the famous dictum—' Of General Tacticus. Those who desire war prepare for war. Our city is surrounded by a wall of creatures, each one of which I gather could only be stopped by a siege weapon. Miss Dearheart, he paused to give Adora Bell a sharp little smile, has been kind enough to bring Ankh Morpork an army capable of conquering the world, although I am happy to accept her assurance that she didn't actually mean to. "'Then, why don't we?' said Lord Downey, head of the Assassins Guild. "'Ah, Lord Downey, yes, I thought someone would say that,' said Vetinari. "'Miss Dearhart, you have studied these golems.' "'I've had half an hour,' Adorabelle protested. "'Hopping on one foot, I might add—' "'Nevertheless, you are our expert. "'And you have had the assistance of the famously deceased Professor Fleed. "'He kept trying to see up my dress.' "'Please, madam.' "'And they have no chem that I can get at?' said a doorbell. "'There is no way of opening their heads. As far as we can tell, they have one overriding imperative, which is to defend the city, and that's all. It's actually carved into their clay.' "'Nevertheless, there is such a thing as preemptive defence. That might be construed as guarding. In your opinion, would they attack another city?' "'I don't think so.' "'Which city would you like me to test them on, my lord?' Moist shuddered. Sometimes Adorabel just didn't care. "'None,' said Veterinari. "'We are not going to have another wretched empire while I am patrician. We've only just got over the last one. Professor Fleed, have you been able to give them any instructions at all?' All heads turned to Fleed and his portable circle, which had remained near the door out of the sheer impossibility of struggling further into the room. "'What?' No, oh, I'm certain I have the gist of Amnion, but I cannot make it move a step. I've tried every likely command to no avail. It's most vexing. He waved his staff at Dr. Hicks. Come on, make yourself useful, you fellows. One more try. I think I might be able to communicate with them, said Moist, staring at the axe. But his voice was lost in the disturbance as the grumbling students tried to manhandle the portable magic circle back through the crowded doorway. Let me just work out why, he thought. Yep yep it's actually simple, far too simple for a committee, as chairman of the uh, merchants uh, guild, gentlemen may I point out that these things represent a valuable labour force in this city, said Mr. Robert Parker, as a member of the ancient and venerable order of greengrocers, Mr. Parker was on a bound never to put his punctuation in the right place. No slaves in Ankh said Adora Bell, pointing a finger at Vetinari. You've always said that. Vetinari lifted an eyebrow at her. Then he held the eyebrow and raised her a further eyebrow, but Adora Bell was unabashable. Miss Dearheart, you have yourself explained that they have no chem. You cannot free them. I am ruling that they are tools, and since they regard themselves as servants of the city, I will treat them as such. He raised, both hands at the general uproar, and went on. They will not be sold, and will be treated with care as tools should be. They will work for the good of the city, and— No, that would be a terribly bad idea. A white coat was struggling to get to the front of the crowd. It was topped by a yellow rain hat. And you are, said Vetinari. The figure removed its yellow hat, looked around, and went rigid. A groan managed to escape from its mouth. "'Aren't you Hubert Turvey?' said veterinary Hubert's face remained locked in a mask of terror, so veterinary, in a kinder tone, added, "'Do you want some time to think about that last question?' "'I only just uh, heard about—' Hubert began. Hubert looked around at the hundreds of faces and blinked. "'Mr. Turvey, the alchemist of money?' veterinary prompted. It may be written down on your clothes somewhere. I think I can assist here, said Moist, and elbowed his way to the tongue-tied economist. Hubert, he said, putting a hand on the man's shoulder. All the people are here because they want to hear your amazing theory that demonstrates the inadvisability of putting these new golems to work. You don't want to disappoint them, do you? I know you don't meet many people, but everyone's heard of your wonderful work. Can you help them understand what you just shouted? We are a gog, said Lord Vetinari. In Hubert's head, the rising terror of crowds was overturned by the urge to impart knowledge to the ignorant, which meant everyone except him. His hands grasped the lapels of his jacket. He cleared his throat. Well, the problem is that, considered as a labour force, the golems are capable of doing the work per day of one hundred and twenty thousand men. Think of what they could do for the city, said Mr. Kowslick of the Artificer's Guild. Well, yes, to begin with. They would put 120,000 men out of work, said Hubert, but that would only be the start. They do not require food, clothing, or shelter. Most people spend their money on food, shelter, clothing, entertainment, and, not least, taxes. What would these golems spend it on? The demand for many things would drop, and further unemployment would result. You see, circulation is everything. The money goes around, creating wealth as it goes. "'You seem to be saying that these things could beggar us,' said Vecinari. "'There would be difficult times,' said Hubert. "'Then what course of action do you propose, Mr. Turvey?' Hubert looked puzzled. "'I don't know, sir. I didn't know I had to find solutions as well.' "'Any of the other cities would attack us if they had these golems,' said Lord Danny. "'And surely we don't have to think of their jobs, do we? Surely a little bit of conquest would be in order.' "'An empirette, perhaps,' said Vetinari sourly. "'We use our slaves to create more slaves. "'But do we want to face the whole world in arms, "'for that is what we would do at the finish. "'The best that we could hope for "'is that some of us would survive. "'The worst is that we would triumph, "'triumph and rot. "'That is the lesson of history, Lord Downey. "'Are we not rich enough?' "'That started another clamour. "'Moist, unnoticed,' pushed his way through the heaving crowd until he reached Dr. Hicks and his crew, who were fighting their way back to the big golem. "'Can I come with you, please?' he said. "'I want to try something.' Hicks nodded, but while the portable circle was being dragged out in the street, he said, "'I think Miss Dearhart tried everything. The Professor was very impressed.' "'There's something she didn't try. Trust me.' "'Talking of trust, who are these lads holding the blanket?' "'My students,' said Hicks, trying to keep the circle steady. "'They—' "'Want to study uh, nec post-mortem communications? "'Why?' "'Apparently it's good for getting girls,' sighed Hicks. There were sniggers. "'In a necromancy department? What kind of girls do they get? No, it's because when they graduate, they get to wear the hooded black robe and the skull ring. I think the term one of them used was babe magnet.' "'But I thought wizards aren't allowed to marry.' "'Marriage?' said Hicks. "'Oh, I don't think they're concerned about that.' "'We never were in my day.' shouted Fleed, who was being shaken back and forth as the circle was dragged through the crowds. Can't you blast some of these people with black fire, Hicks? You're a necromancer for the sake of the Seven Hells. You're not supposed to be nice. Now I can see what's going on. I think I shall have to spend a lot more time in the department. Could I have a quiet word, whispered Moist to Hicks. The lads can manage by themselves, can't they? Tell them to catch up with us at the Big Golem. He hurried on, and was not at all surprised to find Hicks hurrying to catch up with him. He pulled the not-really-a-necromancer into the shelter of a doorway and said, Do you trust your students? Are you mad? It's just that I have a little plan to save the day, the downside of which is that Professor Fleed will no longer, alas, be available to you in your department. By unavailable, you mean... Alas, you would never see him again, said Moist. I can tell that would be a blow. Hicks coughed. Oh, dear. He wouldn't be able to come back at all? I think not. Are you sure? Said Hicks carefully. No possibility? I'm pretty sure. Hmm. Well, of course, it would indeed be a blow. A big blow. A big blow, Moist agreed. I wouldn't want him hurt, of course. Anything but, anything but, said Moist, trying not to laugh. We humans are good at this curly thinking, aren't we? He thought. And he has had a good innings when all's said and done. Two of them,' said Moist, "'when you come to think about it.' "'What do you want us to do?' said Hicks, "'against the distant shouts of the ghostly professor "'berating the students. "'There's such a thing, I believe, as an insorcism.' "'Those? we would not like to do those. "'They're totally against university rules.' "'Well, wearing the black robe and the skull ring "'has got to count for something, hasn't it? "'I mean, your predecessors would turn in their dark coffins.' if they thought you wouldn't agree to the minor naughtiness I have in mind. And Moist explained in one simple sentence. Louder shouts and curses indicated that the portable circle was almost upon them. "'Well, Doctor,' said Moist. A complex spectra of expressions chased one another across Dr. Hicks's face. "'Well, I suppose—' "'Yes, Doctor. "'Well, it'd be like sending him to heaven, right?' "'Exactly. I couldn't have put it better myself.' Anyone could put it better than this bunch, snapped Fleed right behind him. This place has really been allowed to go up hills since my day. Well, we shall see what we can do about that. Before you do, Professor, I must speak to the golem, said Moist. Can you translate for me? Can, but won't, snapped Fleed. You tried to help Miss Deerheart just earlier on. She is attractive. Why should I bequeath to you the knowledge it took me a century to acquire? Because... There's fools back there who want to use these golems to start a war. Then that will reduce the number of fools. In front of them now was the lone golem. Even kneeling, this one's face was level with Moist's eyes. The head turned to look blankly at him. The guards around the golem, on the other hand, looked at Moist with deep suspicion. We are going to perform a little magic, officers, Moist told them. The corporal in charge looked as if this did not meet with his approval. We've got to guard it. "'he pointed out, eyeing the black robes "'and the shimmering Professor Fleed. "'That's fine. "'We can work around you,' said Moist. "'Do, please stay. "'I'm sure there's not much risk.' "'Risk?' said the Corporal. "'Although perhaps it might be better "'if you fanned out to keep the public away,' "'Moist went on. "'We would not want anything to happen "'to members of the public. "'If, perhaps, you could push them back "'a hundred yards or so?' "'Told to stay here,' said the Corporal, "'looking moist up and down.' "'He lowered his voice. "Eh." aren't you the Postmaster General? Moist recognised the look and the tone. Here we go. Yes, indeed, he said. The watchman lowered his voice still further. So, eh, uh, do you by any chance have any of the blue? Can't help you there, said Moist quickly, reaching into his pocket. But I do just happen to have here a couple of the very rare 50p green stamps, with the highly amusing misprint that caused a bit of a stir last year, you may remember. These are the only two left, very collectible. A small envelope appeared in his hand just as quickly it vanished into the corporal's pocket. We can't let anything happen to members of the public, he said, so I suggest we'd better keep them back a hundred yards or so. Good thinking, said Moist. A few minutes later, Moist had the square to himself, the watchman having worked out quite quickly that the further back from danger they pushed the public, the further from said danger they, too, would be. And now, Moist thought, for the moment of truth. If possible, though, it would become the moment of plausible lies, since most people were happier with them. The Omnian golems were bigger and heavier than the ones commonly seen around the town, but they were beautiful. Of course they were. They had probably been made by golems, and their builders had given them what looked like muscles and calm, sad faces. In the last hour or so, in defiance of the watchmen, the lovable kids of the city, had managed to scrawl a black moustache on this one. Okay, now for the professor. Tell me, professor, do you enjoy being dead? he said. Enjoy? How can anyone enjoy it, you fool? said Fleed. Not much fun, young man. The word fun is not applicable to existence beyond the grave, said Fleed. And is that why you hang around the department? Yes. It may be run by amateurs these days, but there's always something going on. Certainly, said Moist. However, I'm wondering if someone of your interests would not find them better served somewhere where there is always something coming off. I do not understand your meaning. Tell me, Professor, have you heard of the Pink Pussycat Club? No, I have not. Cats are not normally pink in these times, are they? Really? Well, let me tell you about the Pink Pussycat Club, said Moist. Excuse us, Dr. Hicks. He waved away Hicks, who winked and led his students back to the crowd, and put his arm around the ghostly shoulders. It was uncomfortable to hold it there with no actual shoulder to take the weight, but style was everything in these matters. The watchers heard some urgent whispering pass to and fro, and then Fleed said, "'You mean it's... smutty?' "'Smut,' thought Moist. He really is old. "'Oh, yes. Even, I might go so far as to say—' Suggestive. Do they show their ankles? said Fleed, his eyes gleaming. Ankles? said Moist. Y Yes, I rather think they do. Ye gods, he wondered. Is he that old? All the time? Twenty four hours a day. They never clothe, said Moist. And sometimes they spin around a pole upside down. Take it from me, Professor, for you, eternity might not be long enough. And you just want a few words translated? A small glossary of instructions. And then I can go? Yes. I have your word. Trust me, I'll just explain this to Dr. Hicks. He may take some persuading. Moist strolled over to the huddles of people who weren't necromancers at all. The post-mortem communicator's response was other than he expected. I wonder if we'll be doing the right thing, setting him loose in a pole-dancing establishment. No one will see him, and he can't touch. They're very big on not touching in that place, I'm told. Yes, I suppose all he can do is ogle the young ladies. There was some sniggering from the students. So, they're paid to be ogled at, said Moist. They are professional oglees. It's an ogling establishment, for oglers. And you heard what's going on in the palace. We could be at war in a day. Do you trust that lot? Trust me. You use that phrase an awful lot, Mr. Lipwig," said Hicks. Well, I'm very trustworthy. Ready, then? Hold back until I summon you, and then you can take him to his last resting place. There were people in the crowd with sledgehammers. You'd have a job to crack a golem if he didn't want you to, but he ought to get them out of here as soon as possible. This probably wouldn't work. It was too simple. But Adorabel had missed it, and so had fleed. The corporal now so bravely holding back the crowds wouldn't have, but nobody had asked him. You just had to think a little. Come on, young man, said Fleed, still where his bearers had left him and backed away. Let's get on with it, shall we? Moist took a deep breath. Tell me how to say, trust me and only me. Form ranks of four and march ten miles hubward of the city. Walk slowly, he said. (laughs) You are a sharp one, Mr. Lipstick, said Fleed, his mind full of ankles. But it won't work, you know. We tried things like that. I can be very persuasive. It won't work, I tell you. I have found not one single word that they will react to. Well, Professor, it's not what you say. It's the way that you say it, isn't it? Sooner or later, it's all about style. Ha! You're a fool, man. I thought we had a deal, Professor. And I shall want a number of other phrases. He looked around at the golem horses, still as statues. And the one phrase I shall need is the equivalent of giddy-up. And while I think of it, I shall need woe, too. Or do you want to go back to the place where they've never heard of pole dancing? Chapter 11 The Golems Go True Worth At work, servants of a higher truth. Back in trouble again. The beautiful butterfly. The insanity of Veterinari, Mr. Bent wakes up. Mysterious requirements. Things were getting heated in the conference room. This, to Lord Vetinari, was not a problem. He was a great believer in letting a thousand voices be heard, because this meant that all he actually needed to do was listen only to the ones that had anything useful to say. Useful, in this case being defined in the classic civil service way as inclining to my point of view. In his experience, it was a number generally smaller than ten the people who wanted a thousand, etc., really meant that they wanted their own voice to be heard while the other 999 were ignored, and for this purpose the gods had invented the committee. Vetinari was very good at committees, especially when Drumnot took the minutes. What the Iron Maiden was to stupid tyrants, the committee was to Lord Vetinari. It was only slightly more expensive, but the only real expense was tea and biscuits halfway through, far less messy Considerably more efficient, and, best of all, you had to force people to climb inside the Iron Maiden. He was just about to appoint the ten noisiest people and create a golem committee that could be locked in a distant office when a dark clerk appeared, apparently out of a shadow, and whispered something in Drumknot's ear. The secretary leaned down toward his master. Ah, it would seem that the golems have gone, said Vettinari cheerfully, as the dutiful Drumknot stepped back. Gone? said Adorabel, trying to see across the window. What do you mean, gone? Uh, not here any more, said veterinary, Mr. Lipvig, it seems, has taken them away. They are leaving the vicinity of the city in an orderly fashion. But he can't do that, Lord Downey was enraged. We haven't decided what to do with them yet. He, however, has. He shouldn't be allowed to leave the city. He is a bank robber. Commander Vimes, do your duty and arrest him. This was from Cosmo. Vimes's look would have frozen a saner man. I doubt if he's going far, sir. He said, "What do you wish me to do, your lordship?" Well, the ingenious Mr. Lipwig appears to have a purpose," said Vettinari. So perhaps we should go and find out what it is. The crowd made for the door, where it got stuck and fought itself. As it piled out into the street, Vettinari put his hands behind his head and leaned back with his eyes shut. I love democracy. I could listen to it all day. Get the coach out, will you, Drumnot? That is being done at this moment, sir. Did you put him up to this? Vetinari opened his eyes. Miss Dearheart, always a pleasure, he murmured, waving away the smoke. I thought you were gone. Imagine my delight at finding you are not. Well, did you? Said Adora Bell, her cigarette noticeably shortening as she took another drag. She smoked as if it were a kind of warfare. Miss Dearheart... I believe it would be impossible for me to put Moist von Lipfig up to anything that could be more dangerous than the things he finds to do with his own free will. While you were away, he took to climbing high buildings for fun, picked every lock in the post-office, and took up with the extreme sneezing fraternity, who are frankly insane. He needs the heady whiff of danger to make his life worth living. He never does that sort of thing when I'm here. Indeed. Can I invite you to ride with me?' "'What do you mean by saying indeed like that?' said Adora Bell, suspiciously. Veterinari raised an eyebrow. "'By now, if I have been adept at judging the way your fiancé thinks, we should be going to see an enormous hole.' "'We're going to need stone,' thought Moist, as the golems dug. "'Lots of stone. Can they make mortar? Of course they can. They're the army knife of tools.' It was fearful the way they could dig, even in this worn-out, hopeless soil. Dirt was fountaining into the air. Half a mile away, the old Wizarding Tower, a landmark on the road to Stowlat, brooded over an area of scrub and desolation that was unusual on the heavily farmed plains. A lot of magic had been used here once. Plants grew twisty, or not at all. The owls that haunted the ruins made sure their meals came from a distance away. It was the perfect sight. No one wanted it. It was a wasteland, and a wasteland shouldn't be allowed to go to waste. What a weapon, he thought, as his golem horse circled the diggers. They could collapse a city in a day. What a terrible force they would be in the wrong hands. Thank goodness they are in mine. The crowd was keeping its distance, but was also getting bigger and bigger. The city had turned out to watch. To be a true citizen of Ankh-Morpork was to never miss a show. As for Mr. Fusspot— he was apparently having the time of his life standing on the horse's head. There's nothing a small dog likes more than a high place from which to yap madly at people. No, actually there was, and the chairman had managed to wedge his toy between a clay ear and his paw, and stopped barking to growl every time Moist made a tentative grab at it. "'Mr. Lipfig!' He looked around to see Sacharissa hurrying toward him, waving her notebook. "'How does she do it?' he wondered. Watching her as dirt's raining around her, she scurried past lines of digging golems. She's even here before the watch. You have a golem horse, I see, she shouted as she reached him. It looks beautiful. It's rather like riding a flowerpot that you can't steer, moist yelled to make himself heard of the noise. The saddle could use some padding too. Good though, aren't they? Notice how they keep shifting all the time, just like the real thing. And why are the golems burying themselves? I ordered them to. But they are immensely valuable. Yes, so we should keep them safe, right? But they belong to the city. They were taking up a lot of room, don't you think? I'm not claiming them in any case. They could do wonderful things for the city, couldn't they? More people were arriving now, and gravitating toward the man in the golden suit, because he was always good value for money. Like, embroil it in a war, or create an army of beggars? My way's better. I'm sure you are going to tell us what it is, shouted Sakharissa. I want to base the currency on them. I want to make them into money. Gold that guards itself. You can't fake it. You want to put us on the golem standard? Certainly. Look at them. How much are they worth? shouted Moist, as his horse reared very convincingly. They could build canals and dam floods, level mountains and make roads. If we need them to, they will. And if we don't, then they'll help to make us rich by doing nothing. The dollar will be so sound you could bounce trolls off it.' The horse, with an astonishing grasp of public relations, reared again as Moist pointed at the labouring masses. That is value. That is worth. What is the worth of a gold coin compared to the dexterity of the hand that holds it? He replayed that line in his head and added, That would make a good headline on page one, don't you think? And it's Lipvig with a G. Sacharissa laughed. Page one is already crowded. What's going to happen to these things? They'll stay here until cool heads decide what to do next and what are they guarding the city from right now exactly? Stupidity. One last thing, Moist. You are the only one who knows the secret of the golems, yes? Inexplicably, this seems to be the case. Why is this? I suppose I'm just a very persuasive person, this got another laugh, who just happens to command a huge unstoppable army. What demands are you going to make? None. No, on second thought, a coffee would be nice. I didn't have any breakfast. That got a much bigger laugh from the crowd. And do you think the citizens should be glad it's you in the saddle, as it were? Hell, yes, trust me, said Moist, dismounting and lifting a reluctant Mr. Fusspot down from his perch. Well, you should know about that, Mr. Lipvig. This got a round of applause. You wouldn't get to tell us what happened to the gold in the bank, would you? He's wearing it, shouted a wag in the crowd, to cheering. Miss Cripslock, your cynicism is, as ever, a dagger to my heart. I intended to get to the bottom of that today, but best-laid plans and all that, I just don't seem to be able to clear my desk. Even this got a laugh, and it wasn't really very funny. Mr. Lipfig, I want you to come with me. Commander Vimes shoved his way through the crowd, with other watchmen materialising behind him. Am I under arrest? said Moist. Hell yes, you did leave the city. I think he could successfully argue, Commander, that the city has come with him. All heads turned. A path cleared itself for Lord Vettinari, as paths do for men known to have dungeons in their basement, and Dorabell hobbled past him, threw herself at Moist, and started beating on his chest, shouting, How did you get through to them? How did you make them understand? Tell me, or I'll never promise to marry you again. What are your intentions, Mr. Libvig? said Vettinari. I was planning to hand them over to the Golem Trust, sir, said Moist, fending off Dorabell as gently as possible. You were, but— Not the golem horses, sir. I'll bet they're faster than any flesh-and-blood creatures. There are nineteen of them, and if you'll take my advice, sir, you'll give one to the King of the Dwarfs, because I imagine he's a bit angry right now. It's up to you what you do with the others, but I'd like to ask for half a dozen of them for the post office. In the meantime, the rest of them will be safe underground. I want them to be the basis of the currency, because— Yes, I couldn't help overhearing, said Veterinari. Well done, Mr. Lipvig. I can see you've been thinking about this. You have presented us with a sensible way forward indeed. I have also been giving the situation much thought, and all that remains is for me— Oh, no thanks are necessary— to say, Arrest this man, Commander. Be so good as to handcuff him to a sturdy officer and put him in my coach. What? said Moist. What? screamed Dorabell. The directors of the Royal Bank are pressing charges of embezzlement against you— and the chairman, Mr. Lipvig. Veterinari reached down and picked up Mr. Fusspot by the scruff of his neck. The little dog swung gently back and forth in a patrician's grasp. Wide eyes opened wider in terror, his toy vibrating apologetically in his mouth. You can't seriously blame him for anything, Moist protested. Alas, he is the chairman, Mr. Lipvig. His paw prints are on the documents. How could you do this to Moist after what's just happened? said Adora Bell. Hasn't he just saved the day? Possibly, although I am not sure whom he has saved it for. The law must be obeyed, Miss Dearhart. Even tyrants have to obey the law. He paused, looking thoughtful, and continued, No, I tell a lie. Tyrants do not have to obey the law, obviously, but they do have to observe the niceties. At least I do. But he didn't take, Adorabel began, Nine o'clock tomorrow, in the great hall, said Vetinari. I invite all interested parties to attend. We shall get to the bottom of this. He raised his voice. Are there any directors of the Royal Bank here? Ah, Mr. Lavish, are you well? Cosmo Lavish, walking unsteadily, pushed his way through the crowd, supported on one side by a young man in a brown robe. You have had him arrested, said Cosmo. One uncontested fact is that Mr. Lipwig, on behalf of Mr. Fusspot, did formally take responsibility for the gold. "'Indeed he did,' said Cosmo, glaring at Moist. "'But in the circumstances I feel I should look into all aspects of the situation.' "'We are in agreement there,' said Cosmo. "'And to that end, I am arranging for my clerks to enter the bank tonight and examine its records,' Vetinari went on. "'I cannot agree to your request,' said Cosmo. "'Fortuitously, it was not a request.' Lord Vetinari tucked Mr. Fusspot under his arm and continued, I have the chairman with me, I see. Commander Vimes, Mr. Lipfig into my coach, please. See that Miss Dearheart is escorted safely home, will you? We shall sort this out to-morrow. Vetinari looked at the tower of dust that now enveloped the industrious golems and added, We've all had a very busy day. Out in the back alley behind the pink Pussycat Club, the insistent pumping music was muffled but still persuasive. Dark figures lurked. Uh, Mr. Hicks, sir? The head of the Department of Post Communications paused in the act of drawing a complicated rune among the rather less complex everyday graffiti and looked up at the concerned face of his student. Yes, Barnsforth. Is, is this exactly legal under college rules, sir? Of course not. Think of what might happen if this sort of thing fell into the wrong hands. Hold the lantern higher, Goatley. We're losing the light. And whose hands would that be, sir? Well, technically ours, as a matter of fact, but it's perfectly all right if the council don't find out. And they won't, of course. They know better than to go around finding things out. So it is illegal, technically. Well, now, said Hicks, drawing a glyph which flamed blue for a moment, who among us, when you get right down to it, can say what is right and what is wrong? The College Council, sir, said Barnesforth. Hicks threw down the chalk and straightened up. Now listen to me, you four. We are going to size Fleed, understand? To his eternal satisfaction and the not inconsiderable good of the department. Believe me, this is a difficult ritual, but if you assist me, you'll be doctors of post-mortem communication by the end of the term, understand? Straight A's for the lot of you, and, of course, the skull ring. Since you have so far managed to turn in one-third of an essay between you, I would say that's a bargain, wouldn't you, Barnesforth? The student blinked in the force of the question, but natural talent came to his aid. He coughed in a curiously academic way and said, "'I think I understand you, sir. What we are doing here goes beyond mundane definitions of right and wrong, does it not? We serve a higher truth. Well done, Barnesforth. you will go a long way. Everyone got that? Higher truth. Good. Now, let's decant the old bugger and get out of here before anyone catches us.' A troll officer in a coach is hard to ignore, he just looms. That was Vimes's little joke, perhaps. Sergeant Detritus sat beside Moist, effectively clamping him into his seat. Lord Vetinari and Drumnot sat opposite. His lordship with his hands crossed on the silver-tipped cane and his chin resting on his hands. He watched Moist intently. Under Vetinari's seat, Mister Fusspot buzzed. There was a rumour that the sword in the stick was made with the iron taken from the blood of a thousand men. It seemed a waste, thought Moist when, for a bit of extra work, you could get enough to make a ploughshare. Who made up these things, anyway? But with Vetinari, it seemed possible, if a bit messy. Look, if you let Cosmo, he began, pardon le gendarme, said Lord Vetinari. not mean no talking in front of me, Sergeant Detritus supplied helpfully. Then can we talk about angels, said Moist, after a period of silence. No, we can't. Mr. Lipwig, you appear to be the only person able to command the biggest army since the days of the Empire. Do you think that's a good idea? I didn't want to. I just worked out how to do it. You know, Mr. Lipwig, killing you right now would solve an incredibly large number of problems. I didn't intend this. Well, not exactly like this. We didn't intend the Empire. It just became a bad habit. So. "'Mr. Lipovig, now that you have your golems, what else do you intend to do with them? "'Put one in to power every clax-tower. "'The donkey treadmills have never worked properly. "'The other cities can't object to that. "'It would be a boon to—to people kind, and the donkeys won't object, I expect. "'That will account for a few hundred, perhaps, and the rest? "'I intend to turn them into gold, sir, and I think it will solve all our problems.' The pain was breaking through again, but somehow reassuring. He was becoming veterinary, certainly. The pain was good. It was a good pain. Concentrated. It helped him think. Right now, Cosmo was thinking that Poochie really should have been strangled at birth, which family folklore said he had been trying to do. Everything about her was annoying. She was selfish, arrogant, greedy, vain, headstrong, and totally lacking in tact and the slightest amount of introspection. Those were not, within the clan, considered to be drawbacks in a person. One could hardly stay rich if one bothered all the time about whether what one was doing was wrong or right. But Poochie thought she was beautiful, and that grated on his nerves. She did have good hair, that was true, but those high heels. She looked like a tethered balloon. The only reason she had any figure at all was because of the wonders of corsetry. And while he'd heard that fat girls had lovely personalities, she just had a lot, and all of it was lavish. On the other hand, she was his age, and at least had ambition and a wonderful gift for hatred. She wasn't like the rest of them. They spent their lives huddled around the money. They had no vision. Poochie was someone he could talk to. She saw things from a softer, female perspective. "'You should have been killed,' she said. "'I'm sure he knows something. Let's hang him from one of the bridges by his ankles.' That's what Granddaddy used to do. Why are you still wearing that glove? He's been a loyal servant at the bank, said Cosmo, ignoring the last remark. Well, what's that got to do with it? Is there still something wrong with your hand? My hand is fine, said Cosmo, as another red rose of pain bloomed all the way to his shoulder. I'm so close, he thought, so close. Veterinari thinks he has me, but I have him. Oh, yes. Nevertheless, perhaps it was time to start tidying up. I will send Cranberry to see mister Bent to night, he said. The man is no further use now I have cribbins. Good. And then lips big, we'll go to prison and we'll get our bank back. You don't look well, you know. You are very pale. As pale as veterinari? said Cosmo, pointing at the painting. What? What are you talking about? Don't be silly, said Poochie. And there's a funny smell in here, too. Has something died? My thoughts are unclouded. "'Tomorrow will be Vettinari's last day as patrician, I assure you.' "'You're being silly again, and ever so sweaty, I might add,' said Poochie. "'Honestly, it's dripping off your chin. Pull yourself together.' "'I imagine the caterpillar feels it is dying when it begins to turn into a beautiful butterfly,' said Cosmo dreamily. "'What? What? Who knows? What's that got to do with anything?' Poochie demanded. "'That's not how it works in any case, because—' listen. This is very interesting. The caterpillar dies, right, and goes all mushy, and then a tiny bit of it, like a kidney or something, suddenly wakes up and eats the caterpillar soup, and that's what comes out as a butterfly. It's a wonder of nature. You've just got a touch of flu. Don't be a big baby. I have a date. See you in the morning. She flounced out, leaving Cosmo alone except for Cranberry, who was reading in the corner. It occurred to Cosmo that he really knew very little about the man. As veterinary, of course, he would soon know everything about everybody. "'You were at the Assassin's School, weren't you, Cranberry?' he said. Cranberry took the little silver bookmark from his top pocket, placed it carefully on the page, and closed the book. "'Yes, sir, scholarship boy.' "'Oh, yes, I remember them, scuttling about all the time. They tended to get bullied.' "'Yes, sir. Some of us survived.' "'Never bullied you, did I?' "'No, sir. I would have remembered.' "'That's good, that's good. What is your first name, Cranberry?' "'Don't know, sir.' Foundling. How sad. Your life must have been very hard. Yes, sir. The world can be so very harsh at times. Yes, sir. Will you be so good as to kill Mr. Bent tonight? I have made a mental note, sir. I will take an associate and undertake the task an hour before dawn. Most of Mrs. Cake's lodgers will be out at that time, and the fog will be thickest. Fortuitously— Mrs. Cake is staying with her old friend Mrs. Harms Beetle in Welcome Soap tonight. I checked earlier, having anticipated this eventuality. You are a craftsman, Cranberry. I salute you. Thank you, sir. Have you seen heretofore anywhere? No, sir. I wonder where he's got to. Now go off and have your supper anyway. I will not be dining tonight. Tomorrow I will change, he said aloud when the door had shut behind Cranberry, He reached down and drew the sword. It was a thing of beauty. In the picture opposite, Lord Vetinari raised an eyebrow and said, Tomorrow you'll be a beautiful butterfly. Cosmo smiled. He was nearly there. Vetinari had gone completely mad. Mr. Bent opened his eyes and stared at the ceiling. After a few seconds, this uninspiring view was replaced by an enormous nose, with the rest of a worried face some distance beyond it. You're a week! Mr. Bent blinked and refocused and looked up at Miss Drapes, a shadow against the lamplight. You had a bit of a funny turn, Mr. Bent, she said, in the slow, careful voice people use for talking to mental patients, the elderly, and the dangerously armed. A funny turn? I did something funny. He raised his head from the pillow and sniffed. You are wearing a necklace of garlic, Miss Drapes, he said. It's a uh, precaution, said Miss Drapes, looking guilty, against colds. yes, colds. You can't be too careful. How do you feel in yourself? Mr. Bent hesitated. He wasn't certain how he felt. He wasn't certain who he was. There seemed to be a hole inside. There was no himself in himself. What has been happening, Miss Drapes? Oh, you don't want to worry about all that said Miss Drapes, with a fragile cheerfulness. "'I believe I do, Miss Drapes.' "'The doctor said you weren't to get excited, Mr. Bent.' "'I, to the best of my knowledge, have never been excited in my life, Miss Drapes.' The woman nodded. Alas, the statement was so easy to believe. "'Well, you know, Mr. Lipfig, they say he stole all the gold out of the vault.' The story unfolded. It was, in many places, speculations, both new and second-hand— and because Miss Drapes was a regular reader of the Tanty bugle, it was recounted in the style and language in which tales of horrible murder are discussed. What shocked her was the way the man just lay there once or twice. He asked her to go back over a detail, but his expression never changed. She tried to add excitement, she painted the walls with exclamation marks, and he did not budge and Now he's banging up in the Tanty, Miss Drapes said. They say he will be hanged by the neck until dead. "'I think hanged is worse than just being hanged.' "'But they cannot find the gold,' whispered Malvolio Bent, leaning back against the pillow. "'That's right. Some say it has been spirited away by dire accomplices,' said Miss Drapes. "'They say informations have been laid against him by Mr. Lavish.' "'I am a damned man, Miss Drapes, judged and damned,' said Mr. Bent, staring at the wall. "'You, Mr. Bent, that's no way to talk. You who've never made a mistake.' "'But I have sinned No, oh, indeed I have—I have worshipped false idols.' "'Well, sometimes you can't get real ones,' said Miss Drapes, patting his hand and wondering if she should call someone. "'Look, if you want absolution, I understand the Ionians are doing two sins for one this week.' "'It's caught me,' he whispered. "'Oh, dear, Miss Drapes, there is something inside that wants to get out.' "'Don't you worry, we've got a bucket,' said Miss Drapes. "'No, you should go now. This will be horrible.' I'm not going anywhere, Mr. Bent, said Miss Drapes, a study in determination. You're just having a funny turn, that's all. Ha! said Mr. Bent. Ha, ha! 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 The laugh climbed up his throat like something from the crypt. His skinny body went rigid and arced as if it was rising from the mattress. Miss Drapes flung herself across the bed, but she was too late. The man's hand rose, trembling, and extended a finger toward the wardrobe, Here we are again, Bent screamed. The lock clicked. The doors swung open. In the cupboard was a pile of ledgers and something shrouded. Mr. Bent opened his eyes and looked up into those of Miss Drapes. I brought it with me, he said, as if talking to himself. I hated it so much, but I brought it with me. Why? Who runs the circus? Miss Drapes was silent. All she knew was that she was going to follow this to the end. After all, she'd spent the night in a man's bedroom and Lady Deirdre Wagon had a lot to say about that. She was technically a ruined woman, which seemed unfair, given that, even more technically, she wasn't. She watched as Mr. Bent changed. He had the decency to do so with his back turned, but she closed her eyes anyway. Then she remembered that she was ruined, and so there wasn't much point, was there? She opened them again. Miss Drapes, said Mr. Bent dreamily. Yes, Mr. Bent, she said, through chattering teeth. We need to find a bakery. Cranberry and his associate stepped into the room and stopped dead. This was not according to the plan, and possibly a ladder, said Mr. Bent. He pulled a strip of pink rubber from his pocket and bowed. Chapter 12 No Help from on High Drumnot Reports A Possible Jape Mr. Fusspot Takes the Stage Strange things in the air. The return of Mr. Bent. Look out, he's got a daisy. Pooch's big moment. Cosmo needs a hand. There was clean straw in Moist's cell, and he was pretty certain no one had gobbed in the stirabout, which contained what, if you were forced to name it, you would have to concede was meat. News had somehow got around that Moist was the reason that Bellister was no longer on the staff. Even his fellow Screws had hated the bullying bastard So Moist also got a second helping without asking, his shoes cleaned, and a complimentary copy of the Times in the morning. The marching golems had forced the bank's troubles onto page five. The golems were all over the front page, and a lot of the inner pages were full of Vox Pops, which meant people in the street who didn't know anything told other people what they knew, and lengthy articles by people who also didn't know anything but could say it very elegantly in 2,500 words. He was just staring at the crossword puzzle— One down, shaken players shift the load. Nine letters. Lord Vetinari had sneered at it, when someone knocked very politely on the cell door. It was the warden, who hoped Mr. Litvig had enjoyed his brief stay with them, would like to show him to his carriage, and looked forward to the pleasure of his custom again, should there be any further temporary doubts about his honesty. In the meantime, he would be grateful if Mr. Lipvig would be kind enough to wear these lightweight manacles for the look of the thing and when they were taken off him, as they surely would be when his character was proved to be spotless, would he please remind the officer in charge that they were prison property, thank you very much. There was a crowd outside the prison, but they were standing back from the large golem which, down on one knee, and with his fist thrust into the air, was waiting outside the gate. It had turned up last night, and if Mr Lipvig could see his way clear to getting it to move, said the warden, everyone would be most appreciative. Moist tried to look as though he'd expected it. He had told Black Moustache to await further orders. He hadn't expected this. In fact, it stomped after the coach all the way to the palace. There were a lot of watchmen lining the route, and there seemed to be a black-clad figure on every rooftop. It looked as though Vetinari was not taking any chances on him escaping. There were more guards waiting in the back courtyard. More than was efficient, Moist could tell, since it can be easier for a swift-thinking man to get away from twenty men than from five but somebody was making a statement. It didn't matter what it was, so long as it looked impressive. He was led by dark passages into the sudden light of the great hall, which was packed. There was a smattering of applause, one or two cheers, and a ringing series of boos from Poochie, who was sitting next to her brother in the front row of the big block of seats. Moist was led to a small podium, which was going to serve as a dock, where he could look around at the guild leaders, senior wizards, important priests, and members of the great and the good, or at least the big and the noisy. There was Harry King grinning at him, and the cloud of smoke that indicated the presence of Adora Bell, and, oh yes, the new High Priestess of Annoyer, her crown of bent spoons all shiny, her ceremonial ladle held stiffly, her face rigid with nerves and importance. You owe me, girl, Moist thought, because a year ago you had to work in a bar in the evenings to make a living— and Annoia was just one of half a dozen demigoddesses who shared an altar, which, let's face it, was your kitchen table with a cloth on it. What's one little miracle compared to that?